If what is called development is allowed to multiply at the present rate, then by the end of the century Great Britain will consist of isolated oases of preserved monuments in a desert of wire, concrete roads, cosy plots and bungalows. There will be no real distinction between town and country, both will consist of a limbo of shacks, bogus rusticities, wire and aerodromes set in some fur-poled fields. Well, we're back on socially distanced um, about buildings mode, although that's really my fault. That's nothing to do with force majeure of external circumstances. You're joining us for uh, the first of a series of excursions around the work of the critic Ian Nairn. Uh, I'm Luke Jones. I'm George Kinchel. I'm Matthew Roberts. How do we want to introduce Nairn? I mean, if I was doing it, I would say he's the other really big architecture critic of the UK in the 50s and 60s, other than Rainer Bannum, who we talked about on a previous episode. It, in many ways, like it's sort of interestingly a polar opposite sort of figure, but where Bannum is techno-optimistic, has a whole set of apparently utopian proposals. Nairn is deeply critical of the direction and the way in which things are going, focused on the past, focused on cities and places that actually exist, and generally um, sort of associated with a, a general tenor of, um, of like horrified astonishment and despair at uh, the way of the contemporary city. He's uh, like a famous prosodist, no? What's the word? <laughs> He's like what, a prose stylist. <laughs> his writing is is famously stylish, as is his his kind of affect i mean i think he's one of the relatively rare people along with bannum to a certain extent who despite being very much of the world of architectural culture managed to gain and develop a kind of cult status that extends beyond that uh and whilst i'm sure plenty of our listeners won't have heard of him before i think a lot of people have seen some of it this is a requested episode by multiple people i think yeah we've had a number of emails about it in some ways it's one that i have some slight misgivings about because it seems such a sort of meta type of subject here we are doing the podcast about architectural it's also a bit it's also a bit fashionable in an incredibly niche circle he's beloved by some small corners of a sort of twitter blog slightly sour slightly left english architecture which sort of belies the fa- the the nature of his um, alignment, certainly during his life, which is as one of the kind of early figures in the post-war disenchantment with modern architecture and with the kind of architectural agenda of the sort of progressive post-war state. Although I think that's that's underselling him. He's very difficult to pin down. And he's uh, uh, like... We will have to explore his position properly as we go along, but I would put him in the category of people who are uh, certainly... uh, He is always actually recognising the necessity to um, live in your time and take action. And in his early career, he is full of hope that the action... Things will all improve. And as time goes on, he is increasingly convinced that almost everything is awful. (laughs) But that may be uh, to do with his general circumstance as well. But that kind of, that sort of sense, what's become the, the, the like contemporary folk opinion, the kind of contemporary folk knowledge of architecture, which is that in the post-war, we had all these lovely cities and then in the post-war we fucked them up. 
which is kind of coalescing in the 40s, 50s. People, you know, with him and figures like John Betjeman, who he was um, associated with, or the work that we're going to start talking start off talking about was hailed by the Duke of Edinburgh as um, as a, a, he, it was the subject of an approving speech pretty shortly after it. But he's not, and I like I completely understand where you're where you're coming at with this framing Luke but it is more complicated than that because the other previous series we've done that you could interleave this with a bit is when we were talking about the reactionaries and there's certainly plenty of overlap there between some of Nen's views and some of the things we were talking about then but it it is more complicated than that because someone who I don't feel Ellis would be really stoked about Cumber- the prospects of Cumbernauld. Yeah, he uh, Nen Nen does get excited about modern architecture at times. At times, yes, I think that there's an issue here a little bit about his in the present moment. The people who are into him, I think, tend to overstress the moments when he's excited by modern architecture, and I think people probably at the time tended to underrecognize them. And I think at the start, you've got to frame those as being the two halves of the of uh, the character. I think we should get right into it. Yeah, let's get into it. I think all of these issues will become plain when they stop being abstract because people can be contradictory (laughs) and they generally, in fact, are. Do you want to say anything just before we start about the background? Well, you know, so he's born in the 30s. He was a kid during the war. Uh, He grew up up mostly in Frimley, in Surrey. It's the, the patio of England. Uh, which is for like the non-English among us is a is a particularly dull bit of the home counties, yeah, 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 dull, conservative, respectable, uh, like with certainly with lots of moments of picturesqueness, but um, with like uh, not in any way exciting. Like Rainer Bannum, he comes from a technical background. His father's a draftsman, uh, working initially famously on the British airship program, which was a bit of a disaster. Um, uh, they built a very big uh, hangar, which is still there, and a very big airship, which immediately crashed. And um, enthusiasts have been trying to sort of rehydrate this project, I would say, literally ever since, to this day. Uh, 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 It's slightly mysterious to me what his attitudes were around the war and what his father was doing in the war, but I cannot believe that wouldn't be highly affecting given that what we're going on to discover. After the war, he did a maths degree at Birmingham. And after that, he took, he opted into the longer version of national service, uh, for which you got paid marginally more, and did three years in the RAF, where he eventually uh, became a pilot flying uh, Gloucester Meteors, which are an early... And by then, kind of already slightly past its prime jet. And it's fair to say that while he's doing this RAF service in East Anglia, he isn't enjoying it very much. Well, it's funny because he opted in for an extra year. The only people I've spoken to about this could, like, uh, uh, who had to do the national service in this time who are now obviously quite old, were all extremely keen not to, uh, to, to do as little as possible, and really were wanting to avoid things like being sent to Korea. Um, and he opted in for, like, extra. I don't know why. It could just be that young people sometimes do strange things because they are inexperienced at life. 
But it could be that there's something else. I don't know. So in 1951, I think, he got a job at the Architectural Review. Um, and that's where the project that we're going to be talking about. There's a good chunk of time that he spends being technically serving as an RAF officer, but hanging around in London, around the kind of architectural scene, both the architectural press and the kind of emerging architectural historical establishment. He he has lots of communications with people like the uh, archivist at the Soane Museum, John Summerson's sort of number two at the Soane, and he takes her on a tour round some of John Soane's houses in East Anglia that he's been viewing on his flights. He spends a lot of his time on flights looking for country houses in in the English countryside. Uh, And so he has this real interest in and this attraction to the world of kind of London architectural cultural society. And he's trying to break into it for a long time. He's applying for jobs. He's failing to, to make it, failing to break in. Uh, and then eventually... I mean, failing to break into the world of architecture theory at the age of like 21. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with no with no prior qualifications other than like... I mean, it all happens... It happens pretty fast because in the, the issue which makes his name, which is this uh, special issue called Outrage, was published in 1955. So um, when he was still in his mid-20s. And I think actually, although he... By that logic, he'd been working there for four years. He hadn't actually... He had written things, but not very many. I think the thing... It's kind of interesting to try and get a sense of what the culture of the AR was at that time. I think that there was, like, quite a... He certainly wasn't the only person with this particular take on the post-war city and on modern architecture. From the late 40s, they'd had this campaign around what they called townscape which is um, a, a, a sort of set of principles that we might dis- discuss a little bit more in the bonus. We should maybe just say that the AR, the Architectural Review, is a monthly, uh, m- quite high production value magazine, kind of the architectural magazine of record that is part of the architectural press alongside the Architects Journal, which is the weekly, uh, more kind of trades journal, all of which owned and run by this company uh, under the aegis of uh, Hubert de Cronin Hastings, who is this extremely eccentric, quite aristocratic... A strange aristocrat who inherited uh, all of the architectural magazines. Uh, It's not run by a company run by this person. He owned it all. (laughs) And he used to just write pseudonymous editorials on a weekly basis, just under like crazy pseudonyms like... Ivor de, de Wolf and things. But I think most of the writing in there was um, either without byline or, or um, under pseudonym as well. So it's not uh, it's not as sort of... Yes, that sort of thing has rather fallen out of favour. It's still kept going in private eye to some extent and The Economist, I guess. But uh, shall we talk about outrage then? I mean, I think... I feel like we shouldn't dance around it too much because it's... Yeah, uh, he had written a few things before then, but it's safe to say that basically... Uh, very early on, he's given the opportunity to do this. And it's in the context of the AR. There's definitely a magazine that's trying to stake out alternative positions as well. It's trying to sort of stoke controversy and get people talking. Uh, but I would say he is helped by the fact that 
it's what he's pushing is kind of a developing a version of the AR party line. It was not unusual um, in that magazine to try and be provocative, even on multiple sides. Earlier on, they had had uh, John Betjamin attacking Pevsner, who both wrote for the magazine. Yeah. As did as did Rainer Bannum, we should say. Was they are they are uh, these two figures are both at the mag at the same time. Although Bannum obviously I think had a few other irons in the fire as well. Um, and in a, yeah, I, the feeling I get is that Bannum was much more out of line with the general uh, kind of ideology of the magazine than Nairn was. Uh, yes, but I think it was also part of the idea of the magazine to try and include different viewpoints, as as you would hope. Um, if you're trying to be a magazine of records, you kind of have to do that. So should we talk about what it's about? Maybe we could have another little quotation. Is the, Which ones do you like? Yeah, we could say actually not only what it's about, but what it is, because it's a kind of strange... It's an issue of a magazine, I guess. It's illustrated by an, uh, an architect called Gordon Cullen, who is like a townscape guy and who I think his book is called also called Townscape um, who worked as an urban planner and I think the two of them have a bit of a professional collaboration at various points that we might talk about uh, after we've talked about the magazine itself. He's a very I, I think a very talented illustrator and they're, they're fantastic graphic quality which lends the work a real weight that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have. What is it about? It's a journey it's a bit of travel literature. Uh, it says outrage, and there's a drawing on the front, outrage in red. And the bulk of it is a journey from Southampton to Carlisle. And roughly every 25 miles, there is a stop and a description of what is seen with a grid of photographs and blocks of text and an illustration or two. And they're sort of before and after illustrations. It's sort of sort of in the manner of contrasts, this famous exemplar of, of architecture going to the dogs um, uh, by Pugin in the early 19th century, which is still the best way to do it. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. Like, uh, and, and like that, um, it's pretty tendentious. If I was going to summarise what I think are the, like, the, four, the four points that it's making, I feel like they are, one, that the real countryside and with it like nature with a capital n are disappearing um and with it some kind of place that man needs to go to for spiritual renewal second one i would say is that the old contrasts and varied character of the countryside and the city are being flattened out by kind of universal infrastructure and anonymous crap into every unspoilt view the third one i'd say is that cities and towns are also having their contrasts and character kind of systematically sort of d devolved in the same way. And the fourth one is that, well, the, to there's this thing that he calls subtopia, which is the kind of untidy edge of the city, which has gone from being a line on a map to being a kind of universal condition, which is spread all over everything. And which in um, the quote that we heard at the start of the program, he, he imagines in the future becoming universal the kind of universal ground condition of, well, of and to the break country. it down a little bit more it's it's a it's a new coinage and i think it's one of these examples of him having a very good uh, with the prose style and just a very good eye for an idea that will kind of 
catch and this is definitely one of those ideas that caught on and that lots of people were talking about but it's a kind of contraction a portmanteau of suburbia and utopia and he says it's it's the idea it's more than just that condition it's a kind of ideology of making suburbia into a kind of utopia uh, of a kind of ideal end state except that also it's obviously under utopia isn't it the sub is also like subpar there's doubler entendre but it's what it's it's like it's a classic nanism in the sense that it's the nanism in the sense that it's a joke but also reflects quite a like cutting and incisive thing that catches a broad imagination like like a lot of people dug in with this could i do a quote because i've got one which i think expresses it so he says every background no matter how sublime has now to be seen against a universal foreground imposed by modern man of posters wire disused petrol pumps car parks conifers institutions for the insane cement works sanitation plants generator stations the wreckage of wars and war departments and war departments right down to what the review in this issue calls things in fields all this adds up to a way of life for the people who live with these objects which is neither agricultural nor urban but subtopian i wonder if maybe on the back of that quote if we could talk about one of the illustrations specifically and i can put it up on social media so that listeners can kind of see as we're talking about it we should say that it it started the edition started uh, with him being kind of john betjeman sh- uh, shockingly saying you should see what's being done in oxfordshire betjeman is the one who who kind of puts him onto the idea uh, and then he starts roughing things up and then Hastings says, ah, you know, this will be a whole edition. Um, and it is massively successful. Like, I think it sells, it definitely increases the circulation of the magazine significantly just for this specific issue. It does catch the imagination. I've sent a, I've sent a Cullen illustration. To- oh, yes. This was the, the one that's in the AR. Lovely. Yeah. So let's talk about this because it's, it's an interesting. So in the you've got above and below, before and after. We've got a kind of cl- classic English uh, small town kind of high street. We've got a medieval church. Uh, we've got some Georgian, late Victorian kind of retail buildings on the left. We've got a pub on the right uh, with a nice uh, little Tadcaster Ales sign written on the side of it. That's in the before. That's the kind of idyllic state. Is that already a joke? Like, because Tadcaster's where John Smith is brewed. <laughs> I didn't know that, but th- yeah, that feels like that's... Uh... Yeah, t- t- it's a brewing town, but it's a brewing town of, like, two rather particular... Anyway, yeah. And then in the updated version, the pub's gone... It's been replaced by a zebra crossing with the kind of iconic black and white stripy poles with the yellow circular light. Uh, we've got a the the gas lamp has gone and it's been replaced by you know steel and concrete uh, street lighting, modern street lighting. And the road has been metalled as well. And the grassy verge has gone. The grassy verge has gone. The war memorial is still there, but it's now 
on a roundabout. And then the shop fronts have these big sort of 50s style lettering across the top of the shop front with big flat windows instead of the little picturesque late Victorian uh, bowing out window uh, for displaying your wares in. So yeah, these are the kind of, these are the things that he's getting, that, that particularly, particularly the gas lamp, the disappearance of the Victorian gas lamp and its replacement with concrete and steel electric street lighting is a cause of particular fury for Nen. So much so that one reader of Outrage in somewhere in the home counties is inspired by the issue to go and chain himself to a gas lamp that the council are threatening to demolish and replace with an electric streetlight. So it inspires this kind of, uh, you know, direct action amongst the home counties, middle middle classes against the improving hand of local government. it, It is also... It does. I mean, that's one that's been really picked up, but it's just as much against railings, uh, roadside signage, military land not being kind of given back, sort of ribbon development, which is kind of like ribbon development style housing, which is sort of strange because that had been around since before he was born, you know. Um, The great era of building that stuff is, is the 30s, really. But it's like anything that kind of seems unnatural in the scene, in the visual scene from a car. Yes, he has. Um, I mean, I do agree with him. I mean, in the small number of places where they still exist, gas lamps are rather lovely, much nicer, much nicer quality of light. They don't light things up as much. So if your priority is to have the, the outdoors very bright so that people can't hide in corners, I guess it's a, a disadvantage. I think now you could say they are. Uh, they would be environmentally un- unacceptable. Although we noticed, didn't we, George, the other day at the, the Apple store... Oh, they chuck LEDs in them all the well, time. Well, no, but yeah. the Apple store <laughs> in Covent Garden, uh, as part of the refit there, they seem to have put real gas, real gas-burning gas there are, They do exist. They do exist. They do exist. There's some in Westminster. Um, there's some in Covent Garden. Not many. They, ha- they are a real... Uh, uh, heritage almost absurdity at this point <laughs> i would say lovely things um he has yeah he has a general kind of thing against the signs of um well i, I see what you make of this quotation there seems to be a sort of general like anti-modernity anti-technology at some bits uh, he says the same fate is overtaking the highlands of scotland australia boasts a wire fence a thousand miles long holland is already a suburb switzerland a hydro Baghdad has trams. The Alps feed Italy with power that comes in endless chains of pylons over every mountain pass. The Dolomites are a vast hydroelectric scheme. Even in darkest Africa, the war paint and the tom-toms are no longer much more than an act put on for film companies and VIPs. So there's a sort of sense of like... He's anti-globalist. He's anti-globalist. He's sort of... He's, there's like a, a mourning for the passing of like authenticity... The sort of picturesque authenticity of the... It reminds me a lot of um, Ruskin complaining about trains. How terrible trains are. And also, it's a refrain you could have heard from anyone from any time, I guess, from like Georgian England onward. 
it's a bit poignant because I guess we're sort of coming up for like the high point of Baghdadi modernity and utopianism, which I think probably peaks in the early 60s or something like that before it all starts to go. But he's also a very young person at this point. Um, it's not a, like, this is, he would have been sort of preparing this stuff, yeah, when he was like 24, 23, 24. And I don't think people, that's a time when people can have brilliant energy, fearlessness, but it's not going to be a, like, developed and considered opinion. And I think at some point we're going to have to just say that, like, a certain amount of the, not to a horrendous extent, but to a certain degree, the both the prose writing style and some of the attitudes are definitely not quite 21st century ready. It, 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 not just in the sense of, like, there's some, there's some stuff that is uh, no longer at all politically correct. There's a little bit of that, although... Not worse than most stuff written in the fifties. I would say better than, but I better much better than the majority of. Stuff. Better than most, actually, much better, but some. But there's definitely there's definitely some of that creeping out. But also, the prose is quite purple, <laughs> uh, often uh, in a way that you it feels a bit and sort of soppy. It's he's simultaneously he's simultaneously a kind of angry young man in a certain sense, and also a kind of young fogey. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was I, my, my prelude was, yeah, an angry young phobia with a cause. So he's simultaneously, you know, getting very worked up about these changes to the built environment that feel reactionary in a certain way, although I, not not always without cause. He, he definitely gets a lot of things right, uh, but he will simultaneously be willing to not quite swear... Uh, sometimes a little bit, but more just kind of use quite... He, he's not fogeyish in the sense that he's very willing to describe a Victorian Gothic revival church in the terms of an orgasm, which in the contexts of mid-1960s British architectural and literary culture is, uh, you know, it's a, bo- it's a bold move. Trans- transgressive. It's transgressive, but also... Exactly the sort of transgression that lots of people are doing and is definitely part of the culture. It's exactly Kenneth Tynan transgression. It's exactly this young generation. It's exactly what people will be doing in the universities. And um, it's fitting into a culture where he's not the only... In a lot of ways, he is an unusual voice. But doing that is not something which is something which can fit fit into a contemporary stereotype do you want to single other things out of it or do you want to talk i mean we could talk a bit more about the critique or we could talk about some of the prescriptions as well because he it's much less resolved ultimately but he does have some uh, ideas about how things could be done differently well some things about the critique first it feels to me that although he never says it and he doesn't quite believe it because he loves both cars and technology that he is one of the biggest things he is criticizing is like car land. It's all about the stuff that goes along the roads. And there is a second big area as well, which is that it, there's, there's, it's full of all, all of this is based on like a representative sample of like <laughs> maybe 25% of a book that I've seen. It's uh, lots of criticism of the military land military use of land. So I grew up in Oxfordshire and all of that area was full of all the air bases that all the bombers took off from. And if you look at old photographs of it, every village is encrusted in like the logistics infrastructure of air war. You know, infrastructure of obliterating Germany. Um, air war. 
And that's one thing. And he also knows about that. That's what he's been doing. <laughs> he's a bit grumpy about it. It took longer than it should have done to get this land back. A lot of it went into other purposes. A lot of it was taken over by local governments. It became, you know, every, like, rubbish dump and whatever. But but the other side is it's car land. And he's exploring it in a car. And the car, even more so than in the city, where we can make a thing about, like, point blocks and car parks being a thing beyond Metroland, beyond those uh, lithographed portraits of the uh, tube stations, the, the like, greatest expansion of the, of the kind of urban sprawl is the one where people are driving. Those sort of houses only make sense for people with cars. But he never says, like, this car economy is, the, is causing, like, there to be no end to the commuter belt. Like, where the commuter belt... He's sort of saying, like, the car commuter belt like, of, of the towns kind of touch each other in the middle. Um, but he doesn't successfully articulate that. I think that's, like, 90% of the stuff he's complaining about is that. Yeah, it comes out of, yeah, the car as a as an agent. Yeah, no, he never really articulates that as being the uh, motor force or the kind of generative force. Because he loves cars. <laughs> well, they're great fun, aren't they? For all that we've kind of described him as being, like, anti-modernity or like anti-globalist uh like one of the big resounding metaphors that is clearly a callback to his time in the RAF and to his father is he sort of says like this is a technical problem the arrangement of our landscapes and our built environment is a technical problem and every day uh, engineers go and work out much more technical problems than that in the sort of workshops of of aircraft factories so if we can work out how to make something fly why can't we work out how to m- make the city uh, and make the landscape good you know he, he do, he's not a disbeliever in the kind of application of he thinks that these are problems that need to be solved through like action he's not opposed to action i guess is what i'm trying to say no uh um no but although he often doesn't want himself to analyse the systematic causes of what he, like, here he has a really strong emphasis from this point and from this point on to you go somewhere, you look around you at what you see and you explain exactly the material, visual things that have happened. But he doesn't have, like, a technological sort of industrial system view of it. He doesn't have a political particularly view of, like, what the source of these problems are. He's interested in the ground-eye view and ground-eye level solutions. And in a way, that engineer, you would think from a sort of theoretical basis, would have to be tackling things systematically rather than purely um, at, at the granular tactical level. And I think to the extent that you can pigeonhole these kinds of things, I think that the tendency to see widespread or social or kind of cultural problems as having fundamental fundamentally moral causes which i think is his way of of seeing it he reiterates again and again that people don't care enough about um the things which they ought to i feel like that is sort of structurally a conservative position in a way it's never really articulated though so we're talking we're kind of examining his heart at that point 
paternalist anarcho Tory. I don't know, whatever. But in a way that doesn't really <laughs> <Yes>. matter. <laughs> like, uh, like I don't think he's trying to sell himself on having like a political, a brilliant political solution. Like that's not. He's not talking about that. That's not his bag. He's not trying to sell that. That's fine. <laughs> whatever. I think he's someone who could. Um, even in the criticism, like, he's willing to... He's very strident, but very willing to, uh, like, countenance other people's views as being completely fine and sensible. I guess the other side of it is that he does have, like, a boundless faith that if you explain things properly, that you'll be able to make people understand that things are important or to change their views. And that he's um, his kind of one-man project is very much about trying to interpret the the you know the built world and to bring it to the attention of the man in the street or whoever whoever the reader happens to be yeah that's the phrase it's a real 50s 60s phrase isn't it it's not quite the man on the clapham omnibus but nearly the man in the clapham automobile i struggled to work out what his prescriptions really like boil down to he so there's this first edition of outrage another edition it's a it's a good success sells lots of units Everyone's very happy. He gets to do another one. Uh, counterattack, which is supposedly what, what's, what the solution's going to be. It's even more difficult to get hold of. It's got a cover that's kind of the same. It says counterattack. It's got the illustration. He requested people who uh, both were organising against this stuff and also uh, people in positions of authority to write into him and he would provide them with suggestions. And he uh, set up a sort of bogus organisation called the, the Counterattack Bureau, which had some letter-headed paper and a stamp. <laughs> there are things stamped from it. But apart from him saying, the only things that I've managed to get from it are him saying, like, don't do that. <laughs> the show is sponsored by Blue Crow Media. Blue Crow Media is an architectural publisher of, well, architecturally themed maps of cities, guides for visits, both literal and also of the mind variety. If you fancy like Nairn, traipsing around some of the um, less-known landmarks and and uh, more distantly-spaced delights. They do a whole package of specifically London-focused guides, the London Trees, which I think we've talked about on the show before. It's very nice. It, I can confirm that it has a very good selection. There's the London Tubes. A couple of which are also in Nairn's London, such is the nature of Nairn's London. London uh, Bit of, bit of London brutalism. The form of the maps is that they've got um, a nice, very clean sort of graphic uh, illustration uh, sort of plan for you to uh, wander around with. And then uh, on the back, it's got photos and descriptions of a selection, very carefully and judiciously chosen, of things worth seeing. Um, they're very nice, and they also make very good gifts, if your mind is turning that way. So... They're available on their website, bluecrowmedia.com, and if you do buy, use our offer code about buildings, all one word, get 10% off. Thanks a lot to Blue Crow for sponsoring the show.
Well, there's also a brief bit where him and Gordon Cullen... So Cullen, uh, independently, had a sort of urban planning career and did a bit of work on New Delhi, I think, and also on some other places. And there's the funny intersection between them and Jane Jacobs, where they provided a series of illustrations titled The Scale of the City to her um, article in, I think, is it in American Fortune called Downtown is for People, which is an essay that we talked about on our Jane Jacobs episode, which is a sort of classic, like, early rehearsal of her her big argument. It struck me reading some of the bits, even in Outrage, and certainly a little bit later on, but, but, but before we get to the famous stuff, that some of his views mesh very neatly he is a, he believes that the solution is sort of one of the solutions is dense settlements and strong differentiation between the settlement what's inside the village and outside the village what's inside the city and outside the city you should ha- be able to walk to everywhere everything should be high density uh we're a densely populated place but also it's nice to be able to walk to the shops and the countryside and places that he loves are places where there are lots of people engaging in collective activity. The sociability of work, the sociability of commerce, when it's all dense. And then the immediacy of a condition which is really different to that. that, that that's one area. And, and that seems to, I can see how that has, that, that has synergies with the, the Jane Jacobs view of cities. Also, I think it's right. I mean, I, I like that. I think high-density village and high-density city are good. Definitely, yeah. I mean, the stuff that he's criticising, yeah. It is, ro- it is rubbish. <laughs> it is rubbish. It's also really early on. The mid-50s, right? I mean, it's a powerful and important critique. And him also trying to persuade people and explain, and believing in the power of explaining architecture to people is a cause which is just and urgent. And he, as part of this uh, collaboration with Jacobs, right, he goes to America for a short holiday or a short, you know, working trip. So, yeah, the, 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 the nature of these working trips is kind of interesting. So a lot of them, I think a lot of these happened when him and Cullen were sort of technically invited together to do things. Part of the reason why those things didn't take off is that Cullen was scared of flying and so insisted on going by boat. And Nairn obviously wasn't really wasn't really a designer. It wasn't a designer at all. So there was some something sort of slightly missing from the type of conversations that they would have been having as a as a pair of of consultants. But it's a sort of funny. I think that the, they really probably did receive quite a lot of inquiries at, at a certain point when the publicity from this project was really fresh. There was eventually an America book along a similar lines, which took a long time. Uh, I think Jane Jacobs had helped him to get funding and it took a long time to get going for him to get a sense of America. A book I haven't even seen a picture of, but the format is the same, apparently, as Outrage and Counterattack, except that all of the um, drawings are taken... So in, in Counterattack and Outrages, there are photographs which are by Nan and drawings by Cullen. And here, the drawings themselves are taken from photographs. Cullen didn't go. And initially, Nan had a pretty negative view of what he was seeing. Uh, and he liked some things, but it's really... I've got a quotation I can read from it, if that's all right. I guess if you've developed this kind of critical approach 
uh, that we've been describing to the specific condition of like suburban development in in England in the 1950s and then you find yourself with that kind of that's the thing that's made your name and you find yourself in for example Albuquerque it's quite difficult so so here's what he has to say about Albuquerque he, he says that with regard to its uh, geographical location it pays no attention whatsoever to either the Rio Grande or the Rockies, but simply goes on and on, sprawling and spewing across the countryside to an endless mess. It is at least an honest mess. I prefer it to the fearful mock Spanish affectations of Santa Fe, where about six genuine Spanish buildings are lost in a welter of fake Baroque gables and commercialised Indian art. Albuquerque is the honest whore. Santa Fe is the wife who cheats. Lazarus, that's good song stuff. A weakness of his is that he can't get behind the thrill of this jumbly stuff. He can't get behind the joys of the autobahn. He can't get behind suburban kicks like mashed up crash commercialism. Or not when it's new, anyway. Because there is something to be found in this. I've obviously. I have. My idea of what Albuquerque is like is so weak. I have no idea. <laughs> like, let alone what Albuquerque would be like in the nineteen early 1960s. Um, I would just be drawing on cliche. You can hear there, and I'll, I'll read another bit. Like, he definitely is just... This, this book takes six years to write from his first visit to America. It's like six years late. And I, you can see where the teething problems are, because it's where he's just got this mode that he's developed... And he's just applying it, you know, as compared to like Bannum, who say what you will, is definitely like cooks up something new for making sense of Los Angeles. We could go to the comparison and I think they have their virtues lie in completely different places and their vices lie in completely different places. Yeah. Here's what he has to say about the kind of placelessness of American urbanism. He says... Where the hell are you if you live in, say, one of the fearful anonymities around Greater Boston, or on a subdivision ten miles from a Carolina town, five miles in the other direction from a school, two miles from the supermarket? And he complains about Grants, a uranium mining town in New Mexico, uh, on Route 66, uh, that it comprises of man treating the landscape as a set of ruled squares and then filling them in with low-intensity muck. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, American suburbia is very weird if you've never experienced it before because it's so big and it just goes... I remember driving as a young man, driving um, through Atlanta, Georgia. And yeah, the suburbia is a kind of... There's just a sort of universal condition where you go for, you know, like 20, 30 miles or something and everything's just the same. It's all just... There's no sort of transition everything is like going on the trans-siberian railway through um pine forests for six days or something there's a i mean there's a it's 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 a question of scale to a certain extent i think difficult to justify the kind of high density a combination of the car and its most extreme effects of the car on like urban development and planning plus just land being an you know endless endless supply of land no restriction on the amount of land always cheaper easier better to build out rather than up yeah there are cities in america which are as big as the southeast of england which i mean under nan's rubric he's concerned that 
the whole of the southeast of England becomes a kind of sprawling. But yeah, I guess it's. Um, I mean, I think it's good. I I I kind of respect him for taking it on because I find it's such an unfamiliar condition that it's. Uh, I know I don't like it. I don't like it, and I find it. I find it weird and alien. But um, I'm not sure I, re- I would have the tools to get stuck in in the way that he does. Core of his approach, um, which is a real strength, is to go to places relentlessly and uh, both r- write down and describe what he sees and to use that experience of going to places relentlessly to develop an idea of them. And it's not to try and think about it in abstract, but it's the process of he does an, an amazing amount of legwork. Particularly in the early years, you could not criticise him for not putting in the, the hours. He really um, goes to and visits an unbelievable number of places, like if you're talking about spots. And the core of his technique is to do that. It, uh, like, in a way, I can see how America would be a challenge because it's... How do you, that's a difficult approach, but it still yields some sort of result. That's an approach which works, I think, best when you've got good background understanding. Even if he doesn't have theory, he has intuition about places because he kind of knows what they're like. But I don't think he would have the same level of intuition uh, or the intuition wouldn't be as applicable to American suburbia. So shall we move on to the buildings of England, which is another project from the uh, late 50s this approach of yeah exhaustively surveying everything going everywhere it has a yeah for listeners who don't know what it is the the buildings of england is a, a series of books the masterminded and incredibly laboriously driven into existence by nicholas pevsner who was Rainer Banham's supervisor in his architectural history phd at the course hold uh, and is the kind of big daddy of English architectural history in lots of different ways. He's a German-Jewish emigre who comes over during the 1930s and eventually uh, becomes a very well-respected art historian who's a real like public intellectual figure, regularly lecturing on the BBC and proposes to... Is it Penguin? I think it's Penguin. Uh, it's now Yale, but I think originally it was Penguin to basically do architectural guides to every county in England. And so you get these thick, black, very distinctive books, which alphabetically go through every settlement in a given county or sometimes a subdivision of a county, like North Yorkshire or whatever, and will just list and describe in quite curt, short prose every single architecturally notable building in that settlement and thus cover the county and cover all, all the buildings and it's an incredible thing this is like it's like one of those things like the dictionary of national biography or the full oxford english dictionary it's it's sort of two bookshelves it is continuously updated, which means that probably they get around to each area roughly once every 50 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the kind of amazing beginning period where, like, Pevsner, there are lots of people helping at various points, and some people write whole counties themselves. But Pevsner does, like, the, the I think the majority of them. Pevsner had this insane work ethic where he would plot out everywhere he was going to go 
and then spend two weeks, usually with his wife, uh, driving around. And, you know, we'd get up at like 5 a.m., hit a succession of villages, be done by like 5 p.m., stay in a pub somewhere and then stay up till like two in the morning, writing up all his notes from the day. And then just two weeks, like blitz the county and then, you know, work up a book off the back of it. And admittedly, he had, like, helpers and stuff, but it is this incredible bit of work ethic. Um, anyway, that's a logical job. If you're one of the few architectural writers who likes going around and surveying things with a surveying background and uh, a strong writing hand um, for you to apply for, it was definitely Nan proactively trying to get the job. And uh, have you got the quote about him... I know this area having grown up in it. <laughs> and it, and also it's easy because there's nothing of really any architectural merit there at all. He does he does Surrey. He does Surrey, which is the county in home county England where he grew up. And on the like sleeve of the book where it gives Ian Nen's biography, it says um that he had been brought up in a part of Surrey that produced a deep hatred of characterless buildings and places, but that he now lives in Pimlico, which has fewer pine woods and more pubs. <laughs> which is a pretty strong... It's a pretty... I wish I had the quote, but it's something like he writes to Pevsner and says, oh, I could do... Uh, I was thinking that you... I know you do all the, the writing yourself, but I was thinking you could have some help with somewhere without any important buildings in it. Or perhaps I could do the unimportant ones. Um, somewhere like Surrey, where there isn't really anything of any interest. <laughs> Um, which is an extraordinary uh, way of getting onto a project. It's sort of um, uh, let me just take away some of the, do- uh, the, the the donkey work for you. But anyway, and so yeah, Nan undertook. Sorry, I have a couple of quotes of things that he wrote. I think I think you should. It, his writing is very is 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 his style of writing, and it's very different to Pevsner's, which is. Um, dry academic and German and efficient. Yeah, but also, um, I mean, Pevsner's writing is not without its sort of foibles or its sort of, you know, he has his uh, hobby horses, he has his things he likes and doesn't like, he has a certain pitch he wants to make about Englishness, uh, but he always does it in this very restrained and dry way, whereas with Nen, the Nen mode uh, bleeds in. So here, for example, we have Byfleet, uh, which is a, uh, quote, a shattered village south of Weybridge. A few old houses remain. Much of this century's contribution is beneath contempt. <laughs> that, is that the entire... That is it. That's all you get for the village. So, it's, you know, you've got to do it. Well, I do mean, every if you're going to cover everything in the yeah, country, yeah. You've got to do every village in the county, but some of them you just give, uh, like, a, a sentence to. Uh, alternately, Rygate is a characterless little town in the middle of the county with the typical Surrey mixture of poor original buildings, alternate vandalism, and gentility in rebuilding. Oh, sorry, uh, brackets, CF, Dorking, Epsom, Leatherhead. <laughs> Not necessarily wrong. I haven't spent a lot of time in... Rygate's something you drive through, right, normally? Yes, so... But what that's giving him, I think... Um, is a grounding, like he's got his RAF technique of kind of surveying. He's done these journeys, using that to do these journeys for outrage, which is just, we're just going to cut a line across the country and say what we see. And now he is writing up everything, every building in parts of the country. And I think that sets the scene for 
what I think we're going to discuss in the next episode, which are um, his famous guidebooks, particularly Nairn's London, but also Changing Towns and Paris, uh, which are the kind of logical development of that. And I think many people would see as the high point of his career. Thanks for joining for this. Yeah, thank you everyone for listening. As always, there's going to be visual content on the social media feeds. So come and follow us at about underscore buildings. Uh, You know, give us a comment. Send us a DM. I'm always happy to receive them. They're always received with love. Yeah, I, I, even, even the kind of haters are good. They're like, uh, or, or not necessarily the haters, but the disagreeers. That's very often they're disagreeing because we've got something horribly wrong. So that's useful to yeah, know. Yeah, we normally said something stupid. Yeah, um, yeah, we believe in uh, try, like we're, we're doing our best, but like um, if we're saying something totally wrong, we can be called out on that. That's good. And uh, there'll be bonus material for this uh topic as there always is um which we'll have up on our patreon at um you can get access to at patreon.com slash about underscore buildings and uh, that's a way that you can pay a little bit to support the activity of the podcast and get a little bit of something in return anyway so we'll be back with you again soon when we'll be moving on to nairn's guides of various kinds Thank Thank you you very very much. much. Thanks for listening. One such resident who is himself taking a great deal of interest in the future of Pimlico as a place to live is author and journalist Ian Nairn. His interest is professional as well as personal, since his subject is architecture and environment. His highly personal approach to the subject emphasises the needs of people, and his particular concern is with how modern cities can be preserved as a satisfactory unit of communal living. I'm a city man. I really enjoy living in cities. I also enjoy living in a human scale. So here in Pimlico, in London, I'm living in a village that's right in the middle of the biggest city in Europe. It seems to me this particular village, by mixture of accident and design, has got most of what it takes to make city living really enjoyable. There are three main problems when you come up against cities that expand violently. Often the old residential areas are swamped by new blocks of offices, and as a result, the old environment's completely swept away, or else traffic comes roaring down streets which were never intended to take it. And there's quite a lot of that in London, I'm afraid. Or the people who lived in the large houses abandon them, move out to the suburbs, and they become slums. And we've got quite a lot of that in London, too. But we do have these mixed up villages and cities which I think probably London has more than anywhere else and this one Pimlico got here has grown over the last 20 years by a kind of process of what Jane Jacobs would call unslumming it was just about ready to become a ghetto and through a succession of deliberate actions the environment has improved. It's improved in the last 10 years since I've been here.